they still matter to him. And uh, I, I think God views all people as a part of his family. This is why Paul says that Jesus Christ died once for all, meaning all people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast designed to coach you up in your faith. The more you know, the more you can grow. The importance of growing your faith is more critical now than ever. Our world is more global than ever. We are exposed to more ideologies from across the worldview spectrum, and the amount of information driven by lying ideologies is greater than any other time in human history. It gets confusing real quick and people can be easily manipulated. If you don't want to be deceived, manipulated, or confused, then it is important to know what you believe and why you believe it. This allows you to think for yourself, to be able to see the truth through all the deceptions, find the truth in all the information and data. The only way to navigate today's world is to develop a strong and clear faith. Our goal is to give you what you need to grow your own faith, to think for yourself, to come to your own conclusions, and we want to provide you with the tools, the facts, and the perspective to think for yourself. My name is Justin Merrill. I'll be your host, but our leader, our guide, and at the helm of our adventure is the one, the only, the salty pastor himself, Dr. <laughs> Douglas Peak. Welcome, everybody. I'm glad you are here with us and that you are starting your year off, 2024, with the salty pastor. I hope that we become a part of your weekly routine to help you grow your own faith. So if you could help us out uh, as we've developed, and this is a separate ministry and it has its own YouTube uh, channel now. It has its own website and we're just trying to grow that a little bit. But if you would like and subscribe on YouTube, that makes a big deal. Even if you don't go to YouTube very often or use it, if you just navigate over there on your phone, go to the Salty Pastor and then subscribe. We want to get those subscriptions up. And the reason why we want that to happen is because a lot of tools to help this platform become available once you get to a certain level of subscribers. Yes. So that's why we're pushing that just so that you know. And I'm really excited that this year we're going to talk about, you know, expanding the kingdom of God and how, you know, the my my heart for expanding the kingdom is directly intertwined with my own faith and how mature and strong it really is. And so what happens to me, this is a question we're asking, what happens to me when I really fully engage in expanding the kingdom of God. Mm. And so I think that's going to be really a great, you know, thing for us to do this whole year. And I think it's going to really help you see your faith change and transform into something that's not only stronger, but it's also more confident, and more courageous. Yeah. Our focus right now, like you said, um, pastor is the theme of the year, which last year's theme was the kingdom of God. And this mm -hmm. year is expanding the kingdom of God. And you didn't just throw a word on the front of there just so you didn't have to pick a new <laughs> one, did you? No, not the easy way out. Not the easy way out. We are basically going from understanding what the kingdom of God is and that Jesus is inviting to be part of it to actively being a part mm -hmm. of it, right? Mm -hmm. So this entire year is going to be dedicated to what happens in your life when you really start living for the purpose the kingdom of God has for you. So the first couple of weeks here in January, we're focused completely on what's commonly known as the Great Commission. So pastor, why and what? Why is it so great? <laughs> why is What is it? Why is it so great? Yeah. Well, the Great Commission is the last recorded words of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. Now, there's something similar in the other Gospels, but 
why this is so significant and why they call it great is because it is the culmination of the ministry of Jesus. In other words, the Gospel of Matthew was written specifically to convince Jewish people that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. The second thing is, is that Matthew was saying that the whole direction of our Jewish faith is now not attempting to fulfill the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant, but all of us who accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, well, I guess that's a little redundant because Christ actually is English translation of the word Messiah. Okay. So it, that Jesus is the Messiah, what that entails is a new covenant or a new mission. That's why the Old Testament, meaning the Old Testimony or the Old Covenant, and then you have the New Testament, which is the New Covenant. And that's why the Bible is split into those two sections. And what he's trying to say in his gospel is that we now have a new mission, right? Our mission isn't to adhere to the old Mosaic covenant. Our mission now is to get people to follow Jesus because Jesus is now the covenant. And so he's kind of uh, uh, fulfilled the Old Testament covenant and in the process replaced it with himself. So that's, that's why the great commission is a commission. And that's why it is great. Therefore, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile and you want to follow Jesus, you have faith, you are a Christian and you want to grow strong in your faith. Uh, if you want to be a mature follower, if you want to be rooted in the foundation of the scriptures, the old and new Testament, and you want to be established rock solid in your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the totality of what it means to have faith. Um, you need to understand that in essence, a complete disciple of Jesus embraces the great commission. There's no getting around it. As a matter of fact, as we said last week is it's not just a duty or an obligation. It's actually who you are. So when you get to that point, it's like, well, this is my identity. I am a disciple of Christ, and I am involved in the discipleship of others, showing them how to follow Jesus. It's, it really reflects the heart of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, this is my heart. This is what I'm doing in my kingdom. I'm expanding it, and I want you to be a part of that. So that's why it's great because it gives us the answer to the most important question in life. And that is why am I here? And so that's it. Yeah. I think it's really hard specifically. And, and maybe you can expound on this a little bit for me, but I think I see more fervor for new converts to fulfill the great commission than people that like myself who grew up in mm -hmm. a Christian family or grew up in church. Like it, it, like I almost see more from people who have just recently accepted Christ or accepted him much later in life looking to bring more people into it than people that are like, oh, well, I've just always known him. And so it's like there's sort of this disconnect of like the yeah. people that should be the most excited to sh be continuing to share it through their lives are actually the ones that tend to not do it as much out of fear or worry or who knows. There could be any kind of number of things that keeps them from doing it. But I just have kind of noticed that it's like there's this attitude to avoid it uh, mm. almost, uh, avoid the Great Commission of, oh, yeah, I do all the other things of a Christian, but 
the Great Commission thing. Like he did say that, but like I'm not. I'm focused on me right now. I have a lot of work to do. I'm still growing. I'm still needing to learn more about myself. And then when I've got it figured out, I'll go do this. Versus people who come to him already broken are like, well, I can't be more broken than I already was. And mm -hmm. so I'm just going to go and like, sh and we see all these stories in, in, in the new Testament, right? Like the, the woman at the well in Samaria, he reveals all this stuff to her. And then yeah. immediately she goes, I'm going to go tell everyone, even though he's like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that it is interesting. Do you want to speak to that for me? What, so. what's this? Why do we see this attitude? Talk to me about, like, it sounds like you're telling us that if you really want to mature as a believer, yeah. this is the primary way you do it. Mm -hmm. But there's so many of us that grew up going to church or have been Christians for a really long time that have not really adventured out into that. So can you t talk on that? Well, I think I think the reason why so many people uh, avoid it who've grown up in the church, you know, or they grew up in a Christian family is because the in their process of development, the, the point of maturation was never clearly articulated. What's the it, end goal? What's the end goal? You see, it, like for instance, um, I've raised three children. Okay. And I've been at the weddings for two of them. So, <laughs> so you know, yeah. And so, and only two of the three have been married. Yes. So, but what's interesting is, you know, our goal is the entire time that they're going up is, is I would tell them is that, you know, why are you making me do this? Or why, are, why do I have to abide by these rules and stuff like that is I would always say, you know, because I'm trying to turn you into a functional adult, you know, you need to grow up and stand on your own two feet. And so th there was this notion of maturation, right? I'm trying to turn you into uh, a wise adult, to make good decisions for yourself mm. because it's your life and you're going to have to live it. I'm not going to live it for you. You have to do it. So most parents get that, right? Well, it's interesting to me that we raise children, we raise people in the faith, even Christians at home, never telling them that your, your uh, identity as a follower of Christ when you're an adult is to expand the kingdom. Mm. And it's a, it's, you are the great commission. It is a form of, uh, uh, maturation that not only it's not something you're supposed to do, but it's something that you are. And, and so I think that that's why it's missed out. And what happens is when you lose your mission in life or your functionality, or then you have issues with value, you have issues with self-confidence, you have issues with uh, self-perception, you know, mm. like you could have low self-esteem. And so what I find interesting, it's like, if you move into the kingdom, right? And you see that the kingdom is established this way. You tend to, uh, if you don't understand why the kingdom is there and what's happening on the outside of the wall and the enemy is you spend it, you tend to spend more of your time complaining about the, the paint color of your, of your stone condo in the kingdom, right? You know, I mean, you like think about, you know, it's ridiculous, but I'm sure there's plenty of medieval comedy movies. I think of Monty Python. It's like the <laughs> yeah. walls are being sieged and people are in their houses and it's like, there's an enemy at the gate. They're blowing everything up. They're yeah. attacking us. And they're like, man, you know, air quality is just really bad today. <laughs> Why can't I we get a breeze? The, yeah. Like, and it's like, those are the things you focus on when you don't realize what's really going, what's on. Really going yeah. on. Right. And, but adults, you know, we grew up and we, you understand what that at every level, I got to go out. Um, you know, I, I heard Nick Saban talk about this, really. He goes, it's called the power of nothing. 
And he said, every day you get up, nobody owes you nothing. Mm. He says, every day, the world owes you nothing. There's nothing promised. There's nothing given. That's why you have to get up and you've got to do better and you've got to discipline yourself and you've got to make effort and you've got to work hard and you've got to take responsibility for yourself. Once you start doing that is when you really start to grow into an adult and deal with life. And, and I think, I think that's why, you know, one of my favorite chapters in the new Testament is Luke chapter 15, because Jesus talks about this attitude and where it comes from. And it's really insightful. Okay. So, um, it's it's three parables basically first it's the the parable of the lost sheep you know he leaves 99 goes find the one it's the parable of the lost coin like the woman who loses a coin and so she tears her house upside down until she can find it and then it's the parable of the prodigal son and we covered all these over the summer in our series yeah Yeah. and so you can go back in those episodes and listen to them um they should be cataloged right there on the website but you know the the most famous parable of all is probably the parable of the prodigal son, mm. right? It just resonates with so many people. And now I, I won't go into that one. I want to read the first parable and just give you a sense of, of uh, I want you to listen to the beginning and the end of it. Okay. Not so much the story itself, but the, the context in which it is being recorded by Luke verse one. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and he actually eats with them. And so Jesus told him this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. He says to them, hey, rejoice with me because I found my sheep that was lost. Now, here's the the sandwich part I want you to hear, the context. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. So notice what he says. He starts off with their tax collectors and sinners want to be near Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees who think they're fine, right, complain. And then at the end, he says, there's more joy in sinners coming to repentance than those who think they don't need to repent. And notice Mm -hmm. repent is not, you know, finding out what sin you have and confessing it. Repentance is all about what are you turning the focus of your life towards? Okay. So. Here's some basic facts. Number one, that this, this little story, this little parable tells us. Number one, the people most unlike Jesus, okay, scribes, I'm sorry, uh, tax collectors and sinners. The people most unlike Jesus were people considered farthest away from God, hence the derogatory phrase sinners right. and tax collectors, okay? Tax collectors worked for Rome, and they tended to skim, and so the people of uh, Israel felt that they were, uh, Benedict Arnold's, you know, they were traitors. Okay. So he says the people, the farthest away from God were the ones who wanted to come near him the most. They wanted to listen to him. 
and see what he had to say. Isn't that interesting? They couldn't get enough of him. They were under the impression, somehow they were under the impression that they could come to him, right? And that they could actually eat with him. That I find that fascinating is that Jesus was uh, carrying himself in a way. There was a vibe about Jesus that even though people called him rabbi and teacher, so they saw him as a Pharisee or a scribe, even though he wasn't one, but he was in that, I guess, you know, you know, cultural or societal group because even other Pharisees called him rabbi. So that's a term of respect and honor. Right, that and he at so, least had enough to... Yeah, so they, they saw him as a part of this group that was... He easily could have been that, I guess. But there was something about him that was so different. All of these people that have, that could never sit with a Pharisee or a scribe or this genre of people, they, they felt they could come close to him. They could listen and also eat with him. So something Jesus, there was a vibe Jesus was giving off that the people, the most unlike him, wanted to spend time with him. He was saying to them, you can come near. Okay. What's interesting, though, is that the people who were supposed to be like Jesus were the ones criticizing him for, di- for doing this. And you know, notice the very nature of their criticism. The, phrase, the Pharisees criticized Jesus for accepting these people as opposed to rejecting them. No, notice that that's what they said. He goes, this man receives. He's receiving them as opposed to rejecting them. It specifically says that he will even break bread with them. So the Pharisees criticized Jesus for accepting and not rejecting those who the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership had already rejected. I find that really fascinating in the kind of the the two pieces of bread, you know, that make the sandwich of this parable is that it starts there and then it ends there. Now, if you go through the rest of the uh, the parables and then the story of the prodigal son and through the rest of uh, the chapter, you see the same sandwich, basically. They're criticizing him. He tells a story. And then he says there's more joy in people who turn to God than those who think they don't need to. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me is this idea, like you said, this vibe that he was giving off mm-hmm. that attracted people who... Obviously, like they were living in uh, not even really a theocracy because Rome had taken over, but yeah. the, the the Jewish leaders had a lot of power in the yeah. lives of the daily citizens of Israel, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. And so it's Definitely. like they've heard all of these things about God for a long time, mm-hmm. and yet this new guy comes along teaching in a different way, showing something completely different, and suddenly these people that whether out of circumstance or choice have been far away from God, suddenly they go, Oh, well he has something that I want or need. Mm -hmm. Right. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what it is. It's they recognize within themselves. There was a deep need that he was offering Mm -hmm. a solution to. And obviously, I mean, Jesus is Jesus. So he's able to fill every need and he knew exactly what he needed to tell every person Mm -hmm. that would help them with that need. But it's really fixing that deep-seated desire, that hole that they had within them, right? Yeah, so he was offering something more than just another set of rules to follow that they had already broken the other set. So why would they have any confidence they're going to adopt the new set and have success, right? right? And there was no encouragement for them to. It was 
even if they walked up to a priest or a rabbi and said, hey, I'm thinking like I need to make some changes, they probably would have just gotten, get away from me. You're going to make yeah. me unclean. You can't be here. Like there's no acceptance or or love or desire to even be around those people, right? And yeah. yet Jesus basically spent his entire ministry with those kinds of people. I yeah. mean, even his disciples were not really people that you would necessarily always want to be hanging out around with. I mean, you think yeah. of the fishermen who probably yeah. stank of fish when he yeah. first pulled them yeah. out of the sea yeah. and said, yeah. hey, come with me. And, you know, Matthew uh -huh. was a tax collector. And, like, yeah. we see all these undesirables that were the key people he was ministering to. And, and you know, he even talks about this. It's like people who need a doctor, like, people who don't need a doctor don't go to the hospital, right? Correct. And so it's yeah. like he was offering a solution to their mm -hmm. problem just like doctors can help us with problems that we have you need mm -hmm. to go see them right and i think that's that's the key so how do you feel like jesus changed the attitude about people far from jesus like when we consider them how has he transformed that or has yeah. he transformed it are we still struggling are we still subtly doing the same thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing at the time. Well, we can. I mean, that is a, a question that we have to seriously deal with. I, I think, you know, one of the best ways that Jesus taught, he told stories. And sometimes storytelling is the best way to change attitudes. And I think it's really interesting is if we really dig into the purpose of the story is to change perspective. And the viewpoint of people... Uh, weren't aligned with the viewpoint of God. Now, notice what he does is he uses a, a viewpoint or an attitude that everybody already has. And what is the viewpoint? If you have a sheep, okay, that's missing, what do you do? You go find it. You go find it. And it then has what value. Yeah. <laughs> And when you find it, what do you do? You're excited. You're excited. Just like when you find 20 bucks in your pocket. Yeah, exactly. So, and then what most preachers do. Not and what anybody most, has cash in their pockets <laughs> anymore. Right. But. Wow. But it's like, you know, most people say, oh, okay. So he valued that. And I go, okay, I think, I think it's even more important than that. It's more significant than that. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that what you have determined is out God still considers as in and that's the most powerful attitude of all and that's this all human beings belong to god mm. okay if you were to look at this in his peers who do the sheep belong to the shepherd and so what jesus is saying is that i'm challenging your presupposition your unspoken that these people don't still belong to god they still belong to him mm. they still matter to him and uh, I think God views all people as a part of his family. This is why Paul says that Jesus Christ died once for all, meaning all people. So now this does not remove the necessary part of every human being to receive that offer, to accept the invitation, to repent, to turn away from the things of this world as the answer to their issues and turn to God as the answer that, that is the issue. That's why he says there's more joy over one sinner who repents than a person who thinks they're righteous who feels they don't need to. Mm. Because the issue is who are you following and turning to? Okay. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes felt that the law would bring them righteousness. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to happen. 
And if you go back on the Sermon on the Mount, you see this. He says, well, you heard that the law said, you know, if you do this, you know, if you murder your brother, that's wrong. But I say to you, if you even call your brother an idiot or you have, you harbor hate in your heart, you've violated the law. And so what is Jesus doing when he's saying that? He's saying that, that it's not just the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. And no matter how hard you try, you'll never live up to it. Right. So what he's saying there is, is following up on this. And it's this total notion that, that God views everybody as a part of your family, his family. And the key is repentance. So so the apostle Peter put it this way in, in verse uh, uh, nine of chapter three of his first letter. He goes, just remember, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but God is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all men to come under repentance. So God doesn't want anybody to perish. God, God doesn't want anybody to be out of his presence after they die, living in hell, this isolated place, right? And by the way, it's not a place where all your buddies are drinking beer and, <laughs> and hanging out. It's not, that's not hell at all, okay? The heart of God is that all people come to him in repentance. And notice every person has to make their own choice. God is not slow. He's being patient because he wants everyone to come to repentance. In other words, he wants everyone to have the opportunity to make that choice. You know, even if it takes them their whole life, he still wants to have them uh, uh, given the opportunity to make that choice. So notice how every person has their own choice to make. Every person has the opportunity to make that choice. But the only reason that that choice exists, the only reason the opportunity for it exists happens is because there is a determination, right? An unspoken judgment. And what is that? It is that all men, all women still belong to God. Mm -hmm. Satan doesn't own them. God does. And so we still have to make that choice, right? But God is exceedingly patient with people and allowing them to hopefully wake up and make that choice, even so far as trying to uh, eradicate all the deceptions. So Jesus sees people who are sinners trapped in the clutches of the devil and they belong to him. So he said, I'm going to go out and find those people. Okay. And so once that determination, once that attitude, that perspective is changed in your life, then the next step makes perfect sense. You would do whatever you could do to find your lost sheep. Uh, no obstacle would get in your way, right? Therefore, the real conclusion that I think we should take from this parable is that my maturity in Jesus, my maturity in faith is is uh, confirmed, it's proven, it's tested when I start seeing people in the same way that God sees them, right? Yeah. And that helps me start to really understand my role and my function. The more mature I become, the more I see the world as Jesus sees the world, and he sees the world of lost people as those who need to be saved, then I want to ask the question, God, how do you want to move through me to do that? So he sees the world of lost people as those who are dead and need to be brought back to life. They're, they're in prison, and he wants to break them out, right? And so uh, when this happens, there's this great rejoicing in heaven. And I don't know about you, but I like parties. 
I like people that are having a great time. I want to be a part of the party in heaven. I really want to be a, par a part of that. And so this, in my opinion, is the point and purpose of the parable, and it's the point and purpose of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think what is so interesting is that we have the opportunity to really mature in our faith when we see people the way God sees them, right? Yes. Our maturity is linked directly to our heart for those who are lost and our yes. desire to reach them, right? Mm -hmm. That's when we see true maturity. Cause then again, you're going from focusing on you. Like I was using my, you know, an example earlier of, well, I'm working on myself. I need to work on these things. And it's like, mm -hmm. there are times to do that, but one of the best ways, and you've said this multiple times when you're really slumping on yourself or you're having low, uh, you're, you're feeling like you're not measuring up in the world. One of the best ways you can really improve your, your mental health um, on those subjects is really to go and serve others. And then you realize, oh, yeah, these are, this is where I actually, you know, this is where I feel purpose. This is how, who I am in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, a lot of those questions start getting solved when you stop trying to work on yourself and you start working to serve others, right? Yes. And I think the you same You change thing, your orientation. Yeah, yeah. You change mm -hmm. your perspective. And the mm -hmm. same thing is occurs here. It's like, stop saying and sitting in the audience and nodding your head and saying, yep, that would be great if we did that. Yep, we would do that. <laughs> that seems really good. Those lost people do need saving, but that's not my job. That's somebody else's job. I got some other stuff going on in my life yeah. that I don't have. I can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. And you're saying, when we really say, we're going to do that and then go do it, that's when we see true maturity and, yeah. and we change our entire perspective on what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. So as we're kind of wrapping up, how do we grow closer in faith so that we can reflect this attitude that Jesus has towards those who are lost? Like, what are we doing to grow so that our perspective, our heart are all mirroring what Jesus has for well, the Well, if you lost? jump down a few more verses there in first Peter chapter three, Peter tells us, he goes, Set aside Christ as Lord in your hearts. So notice what he says. He makes a statement. He goes, set aside or sanctify, set aside Christ as Lord in your hearts. So make Jesus the primary focus in your heart. He goes, always being ready to make a defense or to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So another way of phrasing this is be ready to defend the hope that you have to anyone who asks you about your hope in Christ. Do it with gentleness and respect. We should respect all people. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are often slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The word for defense is the Greek word apologia, which means uh, an apology. You know, and oftentimes we say, oh, you need to give an apology, which means we say, I'm sorry. But in the truest sense of the word, it's a, it's a defense. In other words, I know I'm in the right, okay, and I'm going to defend what I believe. That's where we get the word apologetics from. Okay. And the key is to be able to defend what you believe and why you believe it. So how do we grow stronger in our faith is ask myself, well, why do I believe this is true? You know, why do I believe it's true? And I think the more you ask that question, the better, the stronger you get and the better the answers are. I mean, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to do because of the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the philosophical uh, proofs, all the rational proofs. I mean, it's really so interesting is that the more you actually get into this world, 
The things that you were told growing up in school are just simply false. I know. I'm reading a, a case for the creator by yeah. uh, Lee Strobel. Strobel, yeah. Man, just like some of the stuff that you're just like looking at all of this science that's just showing there's no way that some intelligence didn't design these things and yeah. like the way they're knocking down all these arguments they aren't even really used anymore. They just kind of sit in science books and they're like, yeah, all of this has been disbanded a long time ago. None of the current scientists even use that anymore. Yeah. But we still think that, that this is the primary argument and they've moved on to something else or they just let that one kind of simmer and they're trying to come up with other reasons why intelligent design couldn't be. But as we discover more and as we have more science, all it seems to do is prove more and more that there was something bigger and greater than us that know, designed us. You know, when I was growing up, I was always told that, well, if you have faith in Jesus, that's irrational. Faith is irrational, and scientists are rational, and so that's why the two, never the two can meet, right? And so I, I went to you know, college, and I got out of college. You know, I'm just thinking, well, if I'm going to be irrational, that's okay because I love Jesus, and it's a much better way to live anyway. Yeah. You, know? Um, you know, it doesn't seem to me that scientists were having that much fun, and so I'm like, hey, I'll do this. But <laughs> Then, then I kind of start to get older, and then my kids are studying this, and so I'm digging in it because I want them to be well-established and defended and protected. And so I start digging in this, and I go, wait a second. This is a lie. As a matter of fact, a lot of the most philo uh, uh, most well-respected philosophers out there today say, well, actually, if you're an atheist, that's more irrational than people of faith. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> that's the opposite of what they told yeah. me. <laughs> Those dirty dogs. And that's really the truth. I mean, you know, there's some really great philosophers out there and they go, well, when it actually comes down to it, I mean, if you want to be an atheist, that's cool. You know, do you do you, but it's actually more irrational than believing that there is a God. Right. And so this such becomes such a big deal and it's such a prominent falsehood in our society. I'm going to do a whole series on that later this spring. Okay. Right cool. after I'm Easter. Excited. I, I'm excited. Because I'm really think it's significant that we understand that our faith is not our, our faith is not just the power of a loving relationship with God, but our faith is the most rational thing that you will do. Right. Therefore, it's the best thing for your mind, for your emotions, for your spirit, for your relationships, even your biological, physical body, mm. right? Because it's in alignment with the most rational thing. So anyway, that's kind of a side note. But yeah, I think the way we grow deeper in our faith is we realize that. We know why we believe what we believe, and we can defend it rationally as well as spiritually. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for um, getting us started on this subject this week. I'm excited for Thursday because I'm sure you'll have lots of things to show us and how it applies to our lives today. But I just think this is so good for us to talk about that, you know, we need to be getting up. We need to be training to go and not mm -hmm. just be training to sit. We mm -hmm. have to go. And it's going to be one of the hardest things we do, but it'll also be the best thing we could ever do for our faith. So mm -hmm. thank you guys so much for joining us, and we'll see you on Thursday here on the Salty Pastor Podcast. Blessings and have a great year. 